Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon and welcome. Thank you for attending this, this lecture at the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs with five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak with any of our staff members who are present today at the conclusion of the event. Now about our speaker. We're absolutely <coughs> delighted to welcome Dr. Daniel P. Ahn, who is currently a professorial lecturer at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, where he teaches graduate courses on energy economics and conflict. He is also a global fellow at the Wilson Center and an advisor for the U.S. government. He was previously the chief economist at the U.S. Department of State, where he advised the secretary and senior principals on a wide range of international economic and security topics relevant to U.S. foreign policy, including global macroeconomic growth, financial stability and economic sanctions, counterterrorist financing, international trade, and energy security. Prior to public service, Dr. Ahn was the chief economist for commodities at Citigroup in New York and also held senior positions at Citadel, Barclays Capital, and Lehman Brothers. He has also held research and teaching positions at Harvard University, the National Bureau of Economic Research, Columbia University, the Council on Foreign Relations, and the International Monetary Fund. He is the author of multiple research articles, congressional testimony, and a forthcoming economics textbook, he was featured in Forbes magazine as one of 30 under 30 in finance. He completed his AB in economics and finance with honors from Princeton University and his PhD in economics from Harvard University. Welcome, Dr. Ron. Thank you very much, Danielle, for uh, a real wonderful uh, introduction, and uh, uh, thank you to IWP for uh, the invitation, and thank you to all of you uh, for coming to listen to me talk for uh, uh, the next uh, hour or so. So what I thought I would do today um, is uh, go through uh, some slides for about half an hour, uh, and then uh, leave the remaining time open for questions and answers. Um, we really would enjoy having uh, a discussion uh, with everyone in the room. Um, what I'll be talking about today uh, is uh, some work that I actually began at the State Department, uh, hence, the, uh, hence the background, uh, and uh, uh, sort of continued on in an academic capacity uh, about uh, using new big data and machine learning techniques uh, to understand uh, the economics of uh, targeted sanctions, uh, this new tool of economic statecraft and warfare. Uh, just a quick disclaimer, everything that I say today um, are my personal views and not necessarily the views of the U.S. State Department or the U.S. government. Okay. Uh, sanctions have actually been around for a very long time. Uh, perhaps uh, the first recorded incident, at least in Western history, uh, is, uh, dates all the way back to uh, 432 BC and uh, uh, the McGarren Decree, where Athens imposed uh, uh, sanctions upon uh, the city-state of Megara uh, uh, for its pro-Sparta stance. And if you believe Thucydides, uh, this actually was the, the trigger not obviously the underlying hidden cause, but uh, the trigger uh, that uh, unleashed uh, the Peloponnesian War. And of course, since then, there have been many instances of uh, sanctions as a tool of foreign policy since, uh, whether it is UN sanctions against uh, Iraq, um, North Korea, or um, US sanctions against uh, Cuba, um, et cetera. Uh, but all of those generally fell into the category of what are called uh, broad or comprehensive sanctions. Uh, these are you know, broad trade embargo style sanctions against the entire country. What has been, uh, what's been occurring much more recently um, is a new phase uh, in uh, the history of sanctions, 
uh, namely the usage of targeted sanctions, also sometimes known as smart sanctions, that instead of sanctioning the entire country, only sanctions specific individuals or specific companies and entities um, or even uh, specific transactions. And what I'll be talking about today is uh, how to think about the economics of this new kind of uh, uh, sanctions tool. Um, and in particular, what I'll be discussing today uh, as an, our, our main case study um, are the U.S. and EU sanctions, targeted sanctions program against primarily Russian uh, targets uh, in response uh, to the uh, annexation of Crimea uh, and, of course, the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Uh, from the perspective of a social scientist, uh, this is actually a what's called a nice natural experiment uh, because unlike targeted sanctions programs against uh, North Korea or Iran, etc., uh, the sanctions program against Russia has been purely targeted in nature and not part of a broader comprehensive sanctions uh, program uh, simultaneously. Even then, there are still considerable challenges to trying to understand what the economic impact of targeted sanctions have been uh, in the Russia case. Uh, in, notably, uh, the Russian economy was being impacted by large macroeconomic and sector-level shocks that were more or less contemporaneous uh, with uh, um, the, the targeted sanctions uh, program. Uh, the, you know, targeted sanctions uh, against Russia began in March and April of 2014, um, but later that year, uh, there was a dramatic fall in the price of oil. Uh, that had nothing to do with sanctions per se, but obviously had a very big impact upon the Russian economy. So, as an economist, the challenge is how to disentangle between the impact coming from sanctions and the impact coming from the fall in the price of oil and, and other uh, things that were contemporaneous with the sanctions, but not, uh, but not driven by the sanctions. Uh, of course, people have tried to sort of disentangle that impact, and uh, there are like, studies, for example, at the IMF and the World Bank, et cetera, that have tried to do macroeconomic simulations of Russia, understand what the impact would have been based on the fall in the price of oil, and then study that and compare that to what actually happened to the Russian economy, and then said, well, we think this might be uh, uh, the impact of sanctions. But going back to what I was saying earlier, uh, the very nature of sanctions has changed. Uh, and again, uh, these new forms of targeted sanctions are not macroeconomic and macroscopic in nature. They are microeconomic in nature. Uh, they focus against specific individuals and entities. And therefore, what I would argue is that that requires a very different methodological approach using not macroeconomic data, but microeconomic data uh, to understand the impact. So um, the study, and uh, I should have mentioned at the beginning that this is joint work uh, with my uh, good, uh, good colleague and co-author, uh, Rod Ludema of Georgetown University. Uh, this is, uh, we believe, uh, one of the first studies that is actually using detailed firm and individual level networked big data uh, to actually study the impact on uh, uh, the real uh, economic health and financial performance of the targets at that micro level. And this includes not just publicly traded firms, uh, but privately held firms as well, uh, firms that are not directly sanctioned but are indirectly sanctioned because they are linked to a sanctioned individual, and also subsidiaries of directly sanctioned firms that also indirectly face sanctions uh, because they are significant, uh, they have a significant ownership uh, in the subsidiary firm. Uh, the data in particular comes from two sources. Um, uh, I won't go into terrible detail, but uh, one is called um, uh, the Bureau Van Dyke Orbis database, uh, which is actually now part of Moody's. Um, the other is the LexisNexis World Compliance database uh, that tracks um, a lot of individuals uh, and their relationships to firms. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to get into this uh, here, but we use some, uh, some uh, machine learning uh, uh, AI sort of techniques to try and merge these databases together to get a, a fuller comprehensive picture uh, uh, forensically of what is happening to uh, uh, both sanctioned firms and non-sanctioned firms. I'm happy to discuss offline uh, to anyone who wants to dig deeper into that. 
So from the larger database uh, that was actually tracking about 18 million firms, uh, we isolated around 81,000 firms uh, that are that include about 500 or so firms that were, again, sanctioned, and uh, um, another 2,500 or so firms that uh, are indirectly sanctioned because they are subsidiaries of the explicitly sanctioned firms. And the remainder is a control group uh, that we created by taking all of the other firms that share the same business sector as the sanctioned firms but are not sanctioned. You know, the idea of this control group is similar to like a, like a pharmaceutical drug trial uh, where you have a treatment group of people that get uh, the, the, treated, uh, the treatment um, of a prototype drug and a control group of people who just get placebos. And what we're trying to do here is to isolate out the difference uh, between the performance of the treatment group versus the control group to isolate that impact of the sanctions. What in particular we are tracking is uh, uh, various measures of financial performance like revenue, total asset holdings, number of employees. Uh, we also can track whether the firm is, is uh, active or has gone into some non-active status like they've gone bankrupt or liquidated. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, where, uh, where the company is located and what sector uh, the company operates in. Um, this is just a quick uh, histogram tracking just how many individuals, entities uh, have been sanctioned. Uh, this is just a timeline that shows uh, the incidence of sanctions with uh, uh, the blue being uh, sanctions from, uh, from the US and red being sanctions from the European Union. But really there are, kind of, broadly speaking, three general categories to sanctions. Uh, so there are uh, I think I'm allowed to move this way. <laughs> there are uh, what are called blocking sanctions upon uh, entities. And so uh, uh, there is an, an entity that is explicitly sanctioned, which means that no US person uh, and or EU person is allowed to do any kind of economic transaction with that entity. And then also uh, subsidiaries uh, of that explicitly sanctioned entity um, also uh, implicitly face the same sanctions. And then there are sanctions upon individuals, uh, and therefore there are companies in which the individual has an economic interest in that also, therefore, uh, transactions are prohibited uh, with uh, the West. And lastly, there are sectoral sanctions, which is a little bit, the name is a little bit misleading. Um, it's not sanctions against an entire sector. It is still sanctions against specific companies, uh, but they happen to be companies that are in certain key sectors of the Russian economy, and there, uh, these are milder sanctions where only some kinds of transactions are allowed, uh, mostly around short-term financing, but longer-term financing, certain unconventional technologies, uh, those are prohibited uh, with, um, with these sectoral sanction terms. So those are the three big categories of, of sanctions. Uh, where are these sanctions located? Well, not surprisingly, uh, much of them are in Russia, but actually a considerable number are not in Russia. Uh, they are in Ukraine, in Cyprus, in Finland, in Switzerland, etc. Uh, this is just a Venn diagram that shows uh, the amount of U.S. blocked entities versus EU blocked entities. You can see the overlap in between. Here is the Venn diagram that shows uh, the overlap between U.S. sanctioned individuals versus EU sanctioned individuals. And we divided them into two categories. One are uh, individuals that did not seem to have any economic relationship with a firm, at least according to our database. So these are, broadly speaking, purely political figures. And the below hemisphere, which are individuals that do have an economic relationship with a firm. So you can stereotypically think of people above as being, for example, members of the Crimean Duma or, or Militia leader and people below being business figures um, and, uh, and, and oligarchs. And that in turn creates a Venn diagram of the number of firms that are linked to those sanctioned individuals. And so here are the uh, firms that are linked to US sanctioned individuals versus EU sanctioned individuals. And this is finally the Venn diagram of the overlap between uh, US versus EU sectorally sanctioned. Okay, now as we started exploring the data, uh, 
we notice something interesting. Uh, so, as one might expect, uh, the financial health of a lot of the firms were declining, and that is not surprising again because uh, Russia was hit with a major recession uh, uh, around the same time. But some Russian firms that were actually sanctioned seemed not to be moving in the trend downward, but were either flat or even outperforming and <laughs> seeing big improvements in their financial health. And so as we explored deeper to understand why this was so, we gathered a lot of anecdotal evidence that these firms were getting were the recipients of government largesse and subsidies. Uh, and uh, uh, that those subsidies can come in a variety of forms. They can come in the form of ranking of, of government contracts or state-backed loan guarantees, you know, direct capital injections by the state, tax breaks, etc. You know, the, the, the specific mechanism by which uh, they are, uh, as we call them, shielded by the state may vary, but they are, again, uh, being protected. And that needs to be controlled for uh, um, when understanding and isolating the impact of sanctions, right? Because uh, you don't want to contaminate uh, the uh, measurement of the impact of sanctions by including those firms that were sanctioned but then also uh, uh, shielded by, by the state. So what we had to do, uh, but before that, let me just give you a couple uh, examples of firms that, again, we, we uh, uh, have strong uh, reason to believe got shielded. So BKB Bank is one. Uh, this is actually my favorite example. Uh, Bank Russia, uh, which was one of the first banks to be sanctioned um, by, uh, by the West. Uh, it's known as the private bank um, of uh, Russia's political leadership. Um, you can sort of see the dates down here. This is uh, from the Moscow Times. So exactly one month after it got sanctioned, um, the Russian government announces that Bank Russia is the new bank responsible for managing uh, Russia's wholesale uh, electricity market. And that comes with it the equivalent of several hundred million dollars in revenue uh, every year. So that effectively <laughs> doubled uh, Bank Russia's uh, revenue. And, uh, but Bank Russia had very little experience in actually managing wholesale electricity markets and therefore had to hire the previous bank as a contractor to actually do uh, the work of, uh, of servicing Russia's electricity market. And the day after uh, Bank Russia receives this government contract, uh, Russia announces that it will start opening commercial uh, operations uh, in Crimea, which um, the leadership themselves have said you know, this is not commercially uh, viable necessarily, but uh, well, we will do it out of solidarity uh, with the regime. So there seems to be some underlying relationship uh, between some of these firms uh, that are getting bailouts from the state and, uh, um, uh, and, the, and the political leadership. Um, the final example is Almas Ante is a big defense contractor that of course, among other things, uh, uh, develops and manufactures the service to air missile system that uh, uh, one of which uh, brought down uh, NH-17. So how to control for this shielding effect? Um, we can't just ex post take all of the firms that seem not to move along the trend and then say we think that those are shielded. Uh, we need to figure out some ex-ante objective and systematic way of, of determining which firms are likely to get shielded and which firms don't. And what we did, therefore, is we constructed a list of what we call strategic firms by combining three lists that are actually constructed by the government of Russia. Uh, the first is a list of firms that um, the Russian government deems of, quote, strategic importance for national defense and state security. Um, the second is a list of uh, systemic or backbone firms, um, which have a, quote, significant effect on the formation of GDP, uh, employment, and social stability. And last, a list of systemically important financial institutions, according to the Central. 
and many, although uh, not all firms, which anecdotally we have heard uh, uh, have become shielded, appear on one or more of these lists. So it's not a perfect measure of, of uh, predicting state shielding, um, but as I will show you in a moment, um, it actually still seems to, uh, it doesn't seem to, uh, it seems to work. Here's the Venn diagram of uh, the different types of strategic firms. Okay, um, I'm not going to get into all of the math uh, here, but really let me try and explain the intuition of what we're trying to do. So, again, the analogy is to a pharmaceutical drug trial. Uh, we have uh, uh, the universe of, of all Russian firms, uh, again, mostly Russian firms. And let's just say that here is, is higher financial performance and lower financial performance. Well, a lot of these firms will be going down uh, thanks to the general uh, recession in Russia. But what we do is we compare not the, the, the general decline uh, in financial performance of a sanctioned firm here in red, but we compute the relative performance difference between a sanctioned firm and peers that operate in the same sector as the sanctioned firm. So for example, if there's a sanctioned Russian energy company, we are comparing the performance of that sanctioned Russian energy company to non-sanctioned Russian energy companies. So all of those energy companies, of course, will decline as the price of oil fell, but by, con by computing the additional decline of the sanctioned Russian energy company relative to non-sanctioned Russian energy companies, we are able to isolate the sanction-specific effect while controlling for the broader sectoral energy effect. That's the, the, the heart of the statistical intuition behind what we're trying to do. Um, and what do we find? Let's get to the actual results. We find that targeted sanctions indeed do um, have a very big uh, and statistically significant negative impact upon their targets. Uh, they're uh, converting the, uh, the numbers back into, uh, uh, back into, uh, uh, into intuition. Uh, we calculate that there is about a 3% higher probability of bankruptcy, um, a one quarter decline in revenue, um, a one half decline uh, in asset holdings, and a one third decline in uh, number of employees. These are very, very big numbers, and again, very uh, statistically robust. So, um, and if you uh, add up together all of the impacts of uh, the uh, the impact upon revenue of the firms, and you aggregate them all up together, that comes to something around 1.4 percent of GDP, which is actually quite consistent with some of the macroeconomic simulation models that were done previously by economists, but again, I would argue that um, the right way to do this is not using macroeconomic data, but using microeconomic data. However, <laughs> once uh, we condition upon whether that firm is strategic or not, uh, the story becomes very different. If a strategic firm gets sanctioned, then there is no impact upon the probability of bankruptcy, and there is no impact upon revenue. There is still an impact upon uh, asset valuation, and there is an impact upon number of employees, but the magnitude of that is halved compared to the impact on non-strategic sanctioned firms. So sanctioned but strategic firms are systematically outperforming non-strategic sanctioned firms. And uh, this is actually pretty new. Um, we also try to understand the mechanisms by which the sanctions are actually impacting the firms. Uh, and initially we figured uh, if a firm is operating in a sector that is highly dependent upon Western intermediate inputs, uh, that should have a high impact upon that firm, right? Because the way sanctions are actually working, of course, is by disconnecting those trading relationships with the West 
And so uh, any Russian firm that was dependent upon imports to the West or exports to the West, um, uh, those firms that are more dependent uh, should be more severely impacted by sanctions. But it turns out that uh, just looking at the gross dependence upon the sector that uh, uh, the, the targeted firm is operating in uh, does not have any statistical relationship. Uh, with the magnitude of the impact. So gross dependency upon Western inputs doesn't seem to be the right uh, way to look at this. But if you actually look at how much that sector is dependent not upon gross Western inputs, but Western service inputs, so technology, financing, those kinds of service inputs, that has a very powerful effect. Uh, upon the magnitude of the impact. So if you are a firm that is highly dependent upon Western services as part of your value chain, you are going to be very impacted. While if you're just dependent upon the West for some, let's say, manufacturing part, you can probably find substitutes uh, and uh, mitigate, uh, mitigate that impact. So that is, seems to be the primary channel by which these sanctions are actually uh, working. Okay, um, now moving on a little bit to policy, and I have uh, two minutes left. Uh, it's been interesting to study how uh, there is almost an institutional arms race that is now occurring between the, the sanctioning technology uh, as implemented by the US and the EU and others, and the counter-sanctions or anti-sanctions shielding technology uh, and administrative capacity uh, being developed by targets. So I kind of note that uh, Russia is creating uh, institutional capacity uh, to try and, again, shield and mitigate certain sectors of their economy uh, from, uh, from sanctions. So what are some of the policy implications uh, from this uh, statistical analysis? So, broadly speaking, uh, the targeted sanctions, sometimes known as smart sanctions, because the analogy is to like a, like a smart uh, precision-guided uh, precision bomb that's supposed to just hit the target with relatively little collateral damage, um, that does seem to be living up to its name. Um, and there does seem to be a concentrated economic impact upon the targeted firm relative to their non-targeted peers. But, uh, as I, we discussed, I didn't have enough time to discuss uh, entirely today, but uh, it was fleshed out fully in, in the paper, we do find some evidence of spillover onto non-targeted uh, firms as well. So, uh, there does seem to be some spillover, and that does seem to suggest that, as smart as they are, uh, targeted sanctions could be smarter. Also, we find that the targeted government uh, shields, again, certain strategic targets. This is not a free lunch. At first, when we saw this, we were uh, a little um, nonplussed and felt, well, great. Uh, we, we target, a, uh, uh, the U.S. targets uh, a, a sanctioned firm, but then uh, the government, uh, the host government just rides to its rescue and bails out that firm, then what's the point of, of sanctions? Um, it's actually more nuanced than that, because that bailout doesn't come from nowhere. <laughs> uh, it comes from the state, and uh, uh, the state has to divert resources uh, to shield these strategic targets um, uh, 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 from the full brunt of, of sanctions impact. And if you actually calculate roughly how much minimum uh, the Russian government needed to bail out these strategic targets, it comes to a conservative estimate of at least 13 billion U.S. dollars. Okay. So not, not a huge number, but not an insignificant number, I would argue, either. And uh, again, what the shielding is doing is it's transmuting the economic harm away from the tactical target of the sanctioned firm itself, and instead onto the strategic target of the regime itself. And the regime needs to come up with the resources uh, to do that, that bailout, right? And that regime may that, may, that may mean the regime no longer has the resources to do something else uh, that uh, the regime otherwise would have done. 
change. Or it may mean that the regime in turn decides to divert resources from, say, the general public by raiding the pension fund of, uh, of, of the general public. So in a very narrow sense, perhaps, uh, now understanding this phenomenon of shielding, uh, a critic might argue that targeted sanctions and comprehensive sanctions, there's no difference because Again, targeted sanctions were supposed to be targeting the target, and that was supposed to be better than a comprehensive sanctions approach of targeting the country and, and targeting the, the general public, right? And a critic might say, well, if you sanction a target, but then the regime decides to move resources away from the general public uh, onto the target, then the ultimate pain is being borne by the general public. And so there's no difference between that and comprehensive sanctions. I would push back against that uh, criticism because clearly at the very least what is happening is you are um, still constraining the options available to the regime. The regime has to make a decision whether to shield the target or not. And the agency, you know, uh, who is actually responsible for uh, the pain upon the general public is, in this case, the regime that is making an active decision to take resources away from the general public and onto, um, and shift it onto that strategic, uh, uh, strategic sanctioned target. So there is a very interesting um, uh, soft power, almost, component uh, to sanctions that needs to happen, whereby uh, the general public needs to understand, again, that it is not uh, the West that is responsible for um, uh, the, the impact being moving on to the general public, but rather it is their government's decision to divert resources from their own pensions to bail out this uh, strategic target. And actually, and this gets into this broader question of what exactly are sanctions for in the first place, and I think there is um, there, there needs to be a, 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 a more uh, nuanced and, and fuller understanding of the objectives of sanctions. If the objective of sanctions is just to hurt the tactically damage uh, and, and economically constrain the tactical target, then I would say that um, our research suggests that does work conditional upon uh, the regime not deciding to shield that target. So all else equal, yes, tactically uh, targeted sanctions work. But if you actually believe that the sanctions is not about uh, constraining the target, but instead trying to motivate and incentivize an underlying change in regime behavior, and that's a very different objective. That is a strategic objective, not a tactical objective. And there, um, you know, we only are doing one case study here, so um, and understanding and, and whether sanctions are working from a strategic context is very difficult to understand because we have to consider a hypothetical of what they would have done without sanctions. But I would argue that what we have shown here is some of uh, some interesting evidence that when we sanction a strategic target, somehow that is making the regime uncomfortable enough that it is deciding to actively divert resources to shield that, and in doing so is moving the pain onto itself, and therefore if the point of sanctions is actually just to increase the amount of discomfort to the regime, shielding is actually a good thing. <laughs> and you want to shield strategic targets with the full intention of forcing the regime to bail them out. Um, and then finally, uh, sort of have some thoughts about uh, spillover and, and whether that's a good or a bad thing. I would argue that that is not a good thing. Um, uh, some people might say, well, if there's spillover, in, uh, if there's spillover impacts, that's a good thing because that is increasing the overall magnitude of the economic impact upon the economy. Um, but I think that's, uh, that's too uh, a simplistic a view. Um, 
this, the spillover effects is an unintended consequence of the sanctions. If you are just trying to increase the impact overall, you can always sanction more targets. And actually, from again this perspective of trying to change regime behavior, if this spillover impact is sticky uh, and is just causing general de-risking and general disconnection of, of business relationships that will not come back as easily when sanctions are lifted, that is actually weakening the incentive uh, of uh, uh, the sanction target to change its behavior in the first place. Because if it thinks, I'm going, if, even if I change my behavior, all of this spillover and de-risking has occurred, and that's still going to be there, uh, even if the sanctions have formally rolled off, uh, then what incentive do I have to change my behavior in the first place? So uh, I think that's another interesting policy area. Uh, so just to wrap up, broadly speaking, um, again, uh, I hope uh, I have convinced you that uh, in this new era of targeted or smart sanctions, it requires a radically different uh, statistical approach and data approach that it has to embrace um, you know, big data, new micro data, and, and uh, machine learning and AI and all of that. Uh, in some ongoing research, we are, we are doing some other stuff around uh, understanding ownership structures and, and the creation of shell companies. Um, but there is also this emerging policy linkage between the efficacy of targeted sanctions and the broader kind of efforts at AML, uh, uh, tax evasion, uh, financial transparency. It is with those same tools uh, that these targeted sanctions are actually having an impact. Yeah. So I, I'm uh, five, seven minutes over time, um, but uh, it could have been worse. Uh, thank you very much for listening and looking forward to your questions and comments. Do I call on people or uh, do other people? Uh, it's good. Well, a lot of call on people. Uh, so, yes, sir. All right. Um, Dr. Ahn, thank you very much. My name is Connor Clark. I'm a grad student at University of Maryland. Um, so, I was wondering, I guess, based on uh, it's a two part question. Are you concerned that, say, you know, knowing that even, even with your argument with the Russian government being a main factor of agency here, is there a sort of you know concern that this is going to wind up in an RT headline that says U.S. State Department declares sanctions have zero strategic effect? We're hurting a bunch of pensioners, you know. And is there anything you can do with the State Department to try and mitigate against just handing over a propaganda victory? Um, my second question is also if you are thinking about the stickiness of response um, and the difference between a strategic firm and maybe. You know, thinking about another firm and the pain really transferring or transmuting, in your words, to the regime. If there's a firm that, say, isn't deeply strategic but is owned by Putin's son-in-law or something, you know, is that an effective way to transfer pain onto the regime knowing, okay, they didn't have anything to do with shooting down at MiG-17, but we know Moscow will be irked if they have to bail out the president's son-in-law's, you know, bank. Um, is you know is is that a, a reasonable policy implication and and would that you know have some sort of desired effect? Again, I know that's a two part question. So um, if uh, yeah, take take them in whichever order you like. Okay. Yeah, both excellent questions, um, and uh, uh, I'm going to sort of defer to the actual <laughs> experts on uh, uh, you know, like messaging and communication mm -hmm. and. and Media engagement, of course, you know we have the new uh, U.S. Agency for Global Media uh, to uh, effectively communicate what is actually going on. Um, but again, I, I would just simply say that uh, we are understanding this, uh, the you know, what is actually happening uh, uh, using this you know, big data sets, and it seems to be suggesting that it's more complicated than just simply having a big impact upon the targets. And the most effective policy response is not just resting on our laurels saying target sanctions work and uh, leaving it at that, but having a more multi-dimensional uh, strategy um, that would involve 
not just Treasury and State, but you know the agency for global media or or uh, you know, uh, uh, all the other tools of um, both hard and soft power available to U.S. policymakers to get the right message across and to prevent this rally around the flag effect. Uh, on your second question, um, on uh, you know, is it better to sort of go ag or against uh, um, so maybe not strategic political poll that right, you right. know will get bailed out, or it can be predict with high confidence will get bailed out just to poke at the regime. Right. So uh, again, trying to have an objective and credible quantitative measure <laughs> of uh, the strategicness mm -hmm. of a firm and how likely it is that it's going to get bailed out by the regime um, is very challenging, um, especially in Russia. Um, I Again, we try to do the best we can using publicly available information. Uh, we again found these lists um, of uh, firms that the government of Russia uh, has actually said uh, that these uh, uh, are strategically important to us, that they um, uh, uh, will get priority access to state aid uh, in some cases. But yeah, there's that more amorphous strategic nature of some firms. And again, I, I mentioned during my presentation that not all the firms that we anecdotally believe to have gotten shielded appear on those lists, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, it's going to um, require, I would say, good judgment on the part of um, our policymakers yeah. and good intel, frankly, yeah. uh, to actually understand which are targets actually worth sanctioning and what the, uh, and, and not just from a shield, whether it will shield or not, but also the kind of downstream effects uh, that will occur from sanctions. Sort of thinking of the Deripaska Rusal sort of sanctions right now as uh, a uh, uh, test case on how uh, we need to think about the full secondary and knock-on effects of sanctions upon our value chains and so on. So, thank you very much. Thank you, uh, yes, Doctor. Um, I just appreciate your uh, presentation. I thought your economic analysis uh, was excellent, uh, especially on the on target sanctions and differentiating them uh, from the, the grand view. Uh, uh, my question was, uh, what microeconomic behavior of the firms or individuals actually warrants for targeted sanctions to be applied in the first place? You talked a lot about your analysis with big data, but you didn't talk about the assumption behind the model. Uh, so I, I think there's actually two parts to that question. So first, which firms or which you know which entities and individuals actually get sanctioned? Well, um, that is set by you know, either the, the executive orders, um, uh, which grant the authorities uh, to Treasury and State and other agencies to actually sanction them, and, and those have to do with um, I don't exactly remember the exact language, but you know underlying undermining the democratic processes uh, in Ukraine, um, uh, you know, enabling, again, the, the occupation um, of, of Crimea, uh, a lot of foreign policy uh, uh, reasons, because again, uh, this is, uh, at the end of the day, a tool of US foreign policy and, and national security. So uh, there is a set of legal criteria that uh, these targets need to meet. Um, uh, and all of the targets are carefully vetted uh, by uh, U.S. officials and I'm sure uh, their European counterparts to ensure that they meet the, the right kind of criteria to actually be sanctioned. And that actually touches a bit on your second question, which was, what are the assumptions that underlie um, this analysis? Well, a key assumption is actually that um, you are not biasing, we are not biasing our results um, by having the treatment group of sanction firms be systematically uh, underperforming non-sanctioned firms purely out of coincidence, right? So, for example, if it just so happened that the sanctioned firms were all underperforming because of some other reason, like, for example, because uh, they are um, all energy companies, um, uh, or something like that, 
uh, or uh, that uh, they are all, say, you know, big companies. Um, and since, since all the sanctioned firms, hypothetically, if all of the sanctioned firms were big firms, and big firms just happen to grow slower and perform weaker than small firms, then uh, uh, you're introducing bias uh, into the analysis by uh, uh, having, uh, by, by measuring what seems to be the sanctions effect is actually being happened caused by something else, right? So a key assumption is that uh, there is no underlying economic criteria by which a firm may get sanctioned. And that gets back to this, again, the, the foreign policy criteria or selection process, right? Um, and in the fuller paper, we do a battery of, of statistical robustness checks uh, to see whether we have inadvertently introduced bias into our results. Um, uh, I'm happy to say that all the robustness checks seem to show all green. <laughs> um, there does not seem to be uh, a statistical bias, even though, yes, on average, sanctioned firms tend to be bigger than non-sanctioned firms. But by then comparing a sanctioned firm not with the entire group of non-sanctioned peer <coughs> firms, but just comparing it with the non-sanctioned peer firm that is closest to it in size, so of, of similar size, the effect is still there, for example. So, uh, so we are pretty confident uh, that we have truly isolated a sanctions effect. Um, yeah, let me just go down in turn, so yes, if, uh, no, yeah, yes, sir. In the blue jacket. Yes. So my question is going back to the sanctions controls that you use in your model. So one control that's come to my mind like, is that like, I haven't seen the paper that you control for the ownership. So my question goes for the <coughs> assumption of the non, you said that it's an experimental, right? So that you use defender. But the thing is that like, I can see like how it's going to be experimental, like uh, reason, like, so when the U.S. government is going to target the firm, the firm should have some kind of ownership, but governments should have some kind of stock in, the, in that firm as going to have some own, like ownership should be kind of related to the entities that they're going to be sanctioned, right? So I'm trying to see how you say that it's an experimental data, like this is something that I miss in the paper, and like, I see that you said that it's going to be the work, but how are you going to control for it so the result not being biased? I think I kind of understand uh, the question. So, in terms of ownership uh, and whether that might be introducing bias into our results, uh, well, one check that we did try was again, a number of these sanctioned firms are state owned firms. So we tried, uh, you know, ultimately owned by some part of the Russian government. And you might have reason to believe that uh, firms that uh, are owned by the government directly, um, there is a different incentive by which uh, the government regime might uh, react to that sanction. Um, it turns out that uh, uh, controlling for whether a firm is state-owned or not doesn't seem to have uh, any bearing upon our results beyond the strategic nature of the firm. So beyond controlling for whether that firm is strategic or not, whether that firm is owned by the government or not doesn't seem to have very much of an impact. Um, so uh, we are, again, confident that it's robust to that. Um, but again, in sort of ongoing work, what I'm trying to do is to understand how the firm's ownership structures may be changing uh, in response to sanctions in an effort to uh, basically avoid <laughs> and, and evade sanctions. Um, and uh, again, that's sort of why I said it sort of gets into this broader policy around uh, tax evasion and, uh, and uh, anti-money laundering and all the other uh, not foreign policy related uh, uh, issues uh, on uh, how to, you know, monitor and ensure firms are, are complying uh, with um, with international and, 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 and national law. So, uh, I think there was a question on this side from a lady. No, okay. Um, so then, over there in the. Uh, uh, Doctor, I'll take your time. 
also a student at Zeiss currently. Uh, here's my question. I guess it's like a hypothetical. So let's say you want to do a targeted sanction 311 on a Russian oligarch who has a manufacturing plant, a aluminum plant in Russia, and then also has a smelting plant, let's say, in Ireland. And you, do, you impose a 311 sanction on him. Is there any way for him to buffer? But before, is there any way for him to buffer any of the economic sanctions by maybe, like, before he knows he's, or maybe if he knew he was getting on the STN list to maybe get a swap or something short the aluminum market or the future or something like that? Is that ever, do they, are they ever privy enough for the information that they know they're about to get an STN list? And is that a, a, a problem, possibly, for, for you to help uh, maximize? So, broadly speaking, I would say, yes, that is a policy concern. And again, that uh, touches on what I was saying earlier about this institutional arms race that is occurring between the, the sanctioning technology versus the anti-sanctions shielding technology, right? Both sides are trying to one-up the other in terms of um, either strengthening and, and uh, uh, sharpening the effect versus blunting and mitigating the effect. Um, and I think the case of Rusal is actually quite instructive um, in that uh, the ownership changes uh, that were made by Deripaska to divest ownership of, of these various uh, assets that he controlled to under the 50% rule and so on was sufficient to uh, have uh, those companies be effectively delisted uh, from uh, uh, from the sanctions blacklist. So, uh, uh, yeah, I think things have been uh, becoming, uh, again, I'll say there's, even as sanctions have become more sophisticated, counter-sanctions technology is also becoming more sophisticated uh, yeah, there will need to be continued investment into the, the capacity, uh, and dare I say, uh, economic and statistical capacity of uh, the U.S. government uh, to uh, properly um, uh, uh, continue to maintain the efficacy of these tools. Uh, I think uh, in, uh, I seem to remember uh, that there was some proposed legislation on Congress, uh, before Congress, that uh, suggested creating a, uh, a statistical arm of, of Treasury OFAC uh, that will do the kinds of simulations and, and statistical analysis and maybe machine learning and all that stuff that, that I talked about here uh, to, uh, again, maintain that, that administrative edge. So see where that goes. Uh, yes, sir, in the back. Thanks for your research, Dr. Ron. Um, I'm a recent graduate of the Institute here. You, you mentioned the two data sets that you're working off of to understand the firms, particularly in a state like Russia where a lot of the firms and the ownership is obscured um, or controlled through networks that are not apparent ownership. Um, I'm wondering if you could comment on your future research that you highlighted of how you intend to investigate or gather the evidence for some of these black market transactions that really fuel a big part of the Russian economy, and particularly in some of the uh, front organizations or shell companies that you mentioned. How do you intend to gather that data and investigate where those subsidiaries and ownership links actually are? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And uh, again, uh, this second part, if you will, of the project is um, uh, still a work in progress. Uh, we want to actually tie this off first uh, before really shifting our gears uh, toward the second one, but I can already tell you kind of anecdotally that it's been interesting to watch uh, the, the, uh, the growth of the ownership tree just spiral into this massive structure that funnels through Panama and Cyprus and Finland and, and all that stuff uh, uh, in an effort to uh, to uh, uh, obscure <laughs> obscure their ownership. Um, and again, that's sort of why I, I tied it back into that broader policy around uh, um, tax evasion and, and uh, 
uh, AML and all of that, you know, we need to maintain good policies on you know having transparency and ownership and all that stuff. That is a key element to why these targeted sanctions uh, will continue to work. So, uh, or, or uh, that is a key element to ensuring that these tools uh, continue to work. Um, now, the data, uh, for what it's worth, um, the data set that we gather, um, that we use, uh, does go beyond just simply tracking the same firm. Uh, if the firm decides to change names or change ownership structures or something like that, um, the data puts a, a unique identification code onto the asset and theoretically uh, will continue to track that asset even through these ways of trying to, um, again, disguise ownership and all that stuff. So, but at the end of the day, you know, this, is, this is Russia we're talking about. Um, I think there's always going to be limitations to what, uh, what data they can be. And in fact, this gets back to what we were saying earlier about anti-sanctions technology. Uh, believe it or not, but I was just informed by one of my, uh, uh, one of my friends that uh, Russia has introduced a law requiring firms to obscure, <laughs> obscure their ownership structures in an effort to, again, protect them uh, from uh, the, the full fury of sanctions. So it's like an anti-transparency policy. Uh, so again, this, and, and you know, as an economist and as a data scientist, uh, we live and die by our data, right? So maintaining transparency, maintaining clear pictures into uh, into what's actually happening in these economies. It's not a coincidence that we used Russia as our case study, not only because, again, it's a nice natural experiment because it's a purely targeted sanctions program, but also because it is a you know, fairly prosperous medium income economy that actually has some reasonably credible data um, on, on inside it. Compare that with, say, North Korea, for example. Um, I have a different project where I'm trying to study the economic impact of, on North Korea, of sanctions on North Korea. There we have to get very creative and use other kinds of data like geospatial imagery uh, uh, data to try and understand the impact. We can't really, you know, there's no, <laughs> there's no firm or individual level data uh, that at least I'm aware of uh, accessible um, on North Korea. So, uh, yes, I think there's a question here and we're almost out of time. So, last question. Um, well, first, when you said the the law that was passed, it reminds me, I read in the Moscow Times, I think, last month, they passed a law that said it would allow for, uh, the word that the Moscow Times quoted was unavoidable bribes. Uh, so that's just the nature of the Russian regime. Um, but one, it would be and interesting. famous uh, joke about uh, the best birthday gift being a stop sign so that you can just stop random cars and ask them for <laughs> as a for a bribe. Um, so it would be interesting if, you know, talking to your former colleagues at State, uh, if they could do some sort of analysis based off of the data that you looked at and uh, the classified annex to CATSA with the oligarchs list to actually see the impact for uh, ownership on that end and try to understand, you know, what are the most efficient targets to really go after. Um, so, but when I was a student at Hopkins, I studied firm resilience to uh, sanctions, and I'm curious in your data that you looked at, was there just entire firm drop-off that led to less revenue, or were firms going to uh, different export markets and perhaps discounting goods and services that led to that drop-off? Uh, so, um, first of all, on your first point, um, thank you for that comment. Um, again, uh, that's why uh, I would make the case uh, before uh, before the public and before Congress uh, to properly you know, devote resources, um, whether it's at the State Department, at the Treasury Department, uh, White House, wherever, uh, but to think through the more complexities and nuances because the data is out there. Um, the data is out there, but uh, but we need the bandwidth and we need the resources and we need the right kinds of skill sets uh, to actually draw actionable insights um, from, from that data. And, and again, I would argue, uh, uh, speaking as a data scientist, that there are all these now powerful tools in machine learning and, and all that stuff that can help us with this. But, uh, but again, it, it, needs, uh, it needs that 
strategic vision. So, uh, on your point around um, uh, confirm resilience, uh, so I don't have it in this presentation, but uh, we tried to see whether the impact of sanctions was changing over time. Um, and uh, we only have, a, so the data is annual, um, and we only have a couple of years uh, since the sanctions began. So we don't, you know, we effectively only have around four, four five-ish years worth of data. So um, it's a little, I'd say too early to tell. Um, but as far as the data goes, what does seem to be happening is uh, there's a, a decline in, in the firm performance on average uh, from the sanctions, and there isn't a recovery afterward. There isn't a continued decline. It's sort of the year after they get sanctioned, they see a decline, and then sort of stays there uh, onwards. So limited evidence, therefore, that uh, this sanctions fatigue that some people are talking about um, isn't quite an issue yet, um, but we'll see, uh, we'll see as we get more data. I think I'm out of time, um, but thank you very much again for listening. Um, thank you to those who drove eight hours all the way just to listen to me talk. I hope this was interesting and uh, happy to uh, you know, uh, just chat and, and answer more questions offline. Thank you very much.